Well, good morning, church family. And to those that are joining us online, thank you for doing so. You can go ahead and open your Bible, your copy of God's Word, wherever you have it. And we'll be in Jonah chapter 2, continuing our study of the book of Jonah, looking at God's unrelenting grace. Um, As you may quickly see, I am not Pastor Bob. He is away this weekend, taking his son Ben, who has committed his life to the ministry, to Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, where he'll begin studying the Word of God in preparation for ministry. So he is gone this weekend. I have the great privilege of opening the Word of God with you. Um, Thank you for opening God's Word together with me. Just a few weeks ago, um, I was considering where our students may be in the Bible on Wednesday nights. I like to plan ahead quite a bit, and so I know where our students, I knew at that point, about two or three weeks ago, where our student ministry would be on Wednesday nights up until next summer, but I was not content or not sure of where I really wanted them to be as we welcomed our brand new sixth graders to student ministry. I didn't know where I wanted to start. I was unsure, so I went before the Lord in prayer, and I said, God, tell me or help me understand what I should bring before brand new students so that they might come to have a greater appreciation for who you are and what you have done. And so as I was praying, I thought through a few different passages of Scripture the Lord kind of put in my mind, and the Lord convicted me to teach on His greatness and how great it is to be His child. First, His power, His all-surpassing sovereignty, His unparalleled power. His great power. So we began a series in student ministry called A Big God and a Beautiful Life. And I wanted to highlight the very beginning of this series what we might call or refer to as Big God Theology. Say some sixth graders, right? No, I want them to know how big our God is. And this, I believe, is most certainly what we should learn from the book of Jonah. In the book of Jonah, God commands Jonah. What does Jonah do? He rebels. In the book of Jonah, in chapter 2, God afflicts Jonah. And Jonah repents. And then there's this evil city that God had told Jonah to go to, Nineveh. And God calls out to Nineveh in what might be one of the shortest sermons in chapter 3 that you've ever seen or heard or read, Nineveh repents. Throughout the story, God commands the waves, he commands a large fish, and he calls the heart of man, and all respond to his call. God's plan was to save the Ninevites, and he did so, and he, in the way that he decreed, despite the man Jonah's disobedience. So here's something we need to understand if we do not yet grasp this truth. God is totally sovereign. God is totally sovereign. If you have notes and you're a note taker, I encourage you to write that down and remember that truth. God is totally sovereign. That means that all of God's plans will come to pass. God's will will be done. No power can prohibit, in fact, God's plan. No person can prohibit God's plan from taking place. 
And if that is true, then it goes to mean that also nothing surprises God. Nothing surprises God in your life, not what you do, not the circumstances that you encounter, and nothing will surprise God in the remote villages in Russia 200 years from now. Nothing ever has or ever will cause God to be perplexed. He is never worried, concerned, nervous, anxious, tense, fearful, uncertain, unsure, or uneasy. He is not uptight. He is not tense nor troubled, and he does not tremble. Hear me, he has never been nor ever will be curious as it pertains to the future. Even what he allows to happen throughout the Bible, we see like in the book of Job, he allows to happen under his supreme control. He puts limits on what Satan can do. Yeah, you can do this and this, but you can't do this. In the Bible, we see from the beginning to the end, God's story and God working out all things according to his will. That's exactly what Ephesians chapter 1 teaches us in verse 11. It says this, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, here it is, who works out all things according to his will. He works out all things according to his will, even a fish. Isaiah 46 teaches the same exact thing. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose. My counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose. Lamentations 3.37, another verse talking about the sovereignty of God, is written taunting those who would arrive at the conclusion that the people of earth determine the future. And it says this, Who has spoken and it's come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? God's will will happen. No person, no situation can prohibit his purpose from being accomplished. In fact, throughout the Bible, what we see is that he uses even the evil um, uh, actions of men to accomplish his great purpose. While we could go on that for a long time and looking at uh, Joseph's brothers in Genesis 50, for example, you intended for evil, God intended for good. While we could look at Acts chapter 2, verse 23, and see that Christ was sent to the world to die the death that sinners deserve, that God knew from the foundations of the, of the earth that that would take place at the hands of lawless men. So God can accomplish all of his plans no matter what happens. Nothing surprises him, and he accomplishes his plans for his good purpose. His will will happen. So if that's true, which it is, what did we learn was God's will in chapter 1 as we began this study in Jonah? We learned that the will of the Lord was to speak against Nineveh and that his chosen servant to do so was a prophet by the name of Jonah. In Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, it says exactly that. 
Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. So God willed to speak against, and eventually, as we'll see in chapter 3, save the Ninevites. And he called Jonah to be his chosen instrument to do so. Now, what's the at least perceived problem in that plan? Well, what happens in chapter 1? God told Jonah, go. Jonah told God, no. Right? God had a right plan. Jonah rebelled against that plan. He had hatred in his heart for the people of Nineveh because they were evil. And at the risk of losing his own reputation, he ran from God's plan. You know the problem. Jonah refused and rebelled against God. So I think it might just be helpful as we start chapter 2 to look back at chapter 1 just for a moment and remind ourselves what we know in the book. Kind of a recapitulation of Jonah's rebellion. Jonah's a prophet. We learn about him in other texts of the Old Testament. He was called to go to Nineveh, city and people he hated. Rather than go, he would rebel. And we find out he would rather die than share a message from God with them. So Jonah disobeys God, hops on a ship, and Joppa heads for Tarshish. And then God brings a great storm. So crazy of a storm that the sailors thought they were going to die. They find out it's his fault. They show compassion to him and fear the Lord as he should and eventually act as God's servants to throw him off that ship. And then, as you looked at last week, in verse 17, we have what took place as he was thrown off. Verse 17 in chapter 1, which I kind of include in my message this morning. The Hebrew text um, includes chapter, or, yeah, yeah, chapter 1, verse 17 with chapter 2. And I think it's fitting. It kind of bookends this chapter. It says this in verse 17 of chapter 1. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And it is in this fish that Jonah prays reflecting on his time in the water. And is being swallowed up into the fish. And it is this prayer, along with the circumstances before and after, that we will look at this morning together. Let me say this. As you look in chapter 2, you're going to notice, this might be helpful, that uh, chapter 2 records Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish, considering what took place and, um, and, and saying what took place in the water and praising God for his salvation that God granted him. And you'll notice throughout chapter 2 in that prayer, it's very poetic. And uh, I went through it about a week ago, a week and a half ago, and noticed that he says some things in different ways multiple times, right? And so to go verse by verse by verse is sort of difficult because we'll arrive at the same conclusion three different times. That's not wrong because the conclusion's the conclusion, 
but very poetic language with repetition and parallelism, somewhat difficult just to walk through in uh, a way that just takes apart verse by verse. So we're going to bounce around a little bit in this prayer of Jonah's. But first, let's read it as a whole, as I think it should be understood as a whole, before we look at how and what Jonah says. So here's what I want to do. I want to stand together. I want to read Jonah's prayer, and then we'll find our time in chapter 2 together. So if you would stand with me, let's read the word of the Lord. Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you, as God, heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and all your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Teach us, we pray. And we pray if there is any evil way in us, if there is any sin in our life that we are harboring, that you hate. Lord, by whatever means necessary, would you convict us and bring us to the place that we repent, turn from that sin, and run headlong toward you. Lord, restore us the joy of your salvation this morning. Help us to see in the book of Jonah your unrelenting grace. And help us to see that no matter where we've gone, what we've done, who we are, salvation belongs to you and you are able to save from a runaway prophet to idolatrous Ninevites. You can save. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You'll notice, if you have familiarity with the Psalms, many of Jonah's words are found in the Psalms. He was a prophet. He was well acquainted with the words of God. And in his prayer, we see him not only remember the Lord, but he returns to the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jonah he will once again be obedient in chapter 3, though he will still have struggles throughout his life in remaining obedient to the Lord. 
we see, even in his prayer, he returns to the word of God as he thanks him. So let me tell you my structure here. As we, I think that's helpful just to follow along. We're going to look at God's affliction of Jonah, and as a result, Jonah's petition before the Lord. And then we'll look at jo- uh, uh, God's salvation of Jonah, and resulting Jonah's praise of the Lord. So, let's look, number one, if you're taking notes, I know we don't have anything in your hands to take notes with, I'm usually someone that I love to give like something just to follow along, but if you're a note taker, I've only got three points, I'll tell you the first two are long, the third one's short, because the third one's kind of getting to chapter three, and I don't want to steal Bob's thunder, right? So, all right, verse three, number one is this, number one, affliction brought by God resulted in Jonah's petition. Affliction brought by God. Verse 3, if you would with me. As I said, we're going to hop around just a little bit. Verse 2 summarizes all of verse, really, 3 through verse 9. We read it together. We're going to look in verse 3 now. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. I'm going to go kind of quick because I'm going to point out a few different things. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet shall I again look upon your holy temple. The, wor- the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. The roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Now, this is Jonah describing his time in the water after being thrown out of the boat by the sailors. Now, let me give a personal note, and I think you would agree with me. This would be terrifying. Terrifying. I have a personal confession. I don't like the ocean that much. I'm really not a fan of it. My wife and I do go to the beach. I enjoy sitting in the sand next to my wife, watching my son do whatever right on the sand, getting sand all in his eyes and his mouth and stuff like that. But I don't go in the water very far. Just personal, I'm just kind of nervous about the ocean, right? I don't and I won't go on cruise ships. Now, I know there are some of you that will hear that in the message and remember that and then come up to me afterwards or say to me, oh, cruise ships aren't that scary. They've got lifeboats, right? A lot of things have changed since the Titanic, right? Yada, yada, yada. You can send me the email. I promise I'm still not getting on a cruise ship. Say, okay, whatever. I'm terrified of the ocean, literally terrified of the ocean. Just damn. Why is that? Well, because... And I'm going to make my case here for just a minute. Because there are things in the ocean we are still discovering. It means there's animals out there we don't even know exist because they're too far away from us that we haven't seen. There are parts of the ocean, to my knowledge, that we have not explored. There are depths, the, the ocean's depth is deeper than the height of Mount Everest. I don't plan on going up to Mount Everest. I would not like to sink to the depths of the ocean. There is a point in the ocean that I am told, that I do not want to visit, that there is total blackness where light no longer reaches. And as we will learn today, apparently there are fish that can swallow you whole. I am not interested in a cruise ship, right? I assure you will not convince me of that, that the ocean is not terrifying. But here's this truth. Even if you love the ocean, one of our young adult students is a scuba diver. 
But even if you're a scuba diver and love the ocean, you likewise know that, there are under circu- there, that, that under certain circumstances, the ocean can be a very terrifying place. And it is those circumstances that Jonah describes. As he describes his experience in the sea, he uses words such as, The flood surrounded me into the heart of the seas is where I was. All of your waves and your billows are over me. The waters closed in on me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I was at the roots of the mountains. The best understanding of the roots of the mountains is there's a place in which the mountains, I guess, go into the earth, and that's where he was. That's very deep. Jonah descends to the lowest depths of the sea. This would be terrifying. Waters closed in over me. He mentions this word in verse 2, Sheol. And he likewise describes it later in verse 5, I believe. No, 6. As the land whose bars closed on me forever. He is all, he's describing his near-death experience. Now there are some commentators that think he died and it's a resurrection and, and it's a picture of Christ. And it is a picture of Christ, whether it's he's rescued or resurrection. I, I don't, I'm not certain. Regardless, he describes his situation like being in the land of the dead, Sheol, a place no man or woman can simply visit and leave, the realm of the dead. Jonah sees his descent to the bottom of the sea as a descent toward death. One commentator says the Hebrew noun here has the special sense of the underworld. Now, we're not going to do a long study in Sheol. We simply don't have time. There's a guy named Matthew Emerson that does a long study, and his commentary on Sheol is very helpful if you just want to write down his name and look it up later. This is a terrifying situation. He is helpless. He no longer is in, though the Lord is everywhere, as he says, in the presence of the Lord. Now, there's something I want you to see here. He knows, as he says in chapter 1, that the creator, that is God, controls the sky and the sea. He knows he's in charge of the sea. Chapter 1, verse 9, he says, I'm a Hebrew who serves God of heaven and who made the sea. So God, in control of the sea, covers Jonah. There's something else I want you to see. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 15, he says, Jonah's writing, the book of Jonah, we believe. It's his writing of what took place. And in chapter 1, verse 15, he describes what took place as he was thrown off the boat as the sailors hurled me out to sea. But what does he say in verse 3? For you cast me into the deep. So what I want you to see is the sailors were acting as God's servants to bring affliction upon Jonah. Listen. Sometimes God brings affliction to awaken us. That's easier said than experienced. This is nothing new in the scripture. We should know it and we should even thank him for it, though it may be difficult in the time. Psalm 119, 75 and 76 says this, I know, O Lord, your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. In faithfulness you have 
afflicted me. So, what do we learn? God may, in his faithfulness, bring affliction upon his people to rid whatever impurity lies in their own life. Now, affliction, by definition, is a painful process. But it is not a process of God's abandonment. It's a process by which, by which he may use for your holiness. Let me give you an example. The book of Malachi is written to a people, especially to Levites, to priests that are acting in ungodly ways and leading others to do the same. They wait the day of the Lord when he will return. But Malachi, a messenger of the Lord, says, who can endure, this is chapter 3, verse 2 of Malachi, who can endure the day of his coming? They're like, come, Lord, come. And Malachi says, who can endure it? Who can stand when he appears? This is what it says. For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and then they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord because they hadn't before. Quick explanation of two different things that it mentions there. Fuller soap and refiner. Fuller soap. Fuller soap um, was a, a certain type of soap that was used. It was to scrub out um, uh, uh, stains in garments, and it would be very, very hard. I think I'm going in and out. It would be scrubbed very, very hard upon that garment, and then often they would take that garment and beat it over a rock so that the stain would be removed and the garment would once again be pure. So they're saying, Wait, uh, we want the Lord to come. And he says, yes, but it may be more painful than you expect because you need to be purified because you have stains. And then he says, like a refiner's fire. Now, I am no silversmith. I've been to Silver Dollar City in Bran Branson, Missouri, right? But, so I'm no silversmith. But I have heard that what they do, the impurities, as, am I going in and out? Am I good? To what they do to remove the impurity from the silver is they will burn up a pot or whatever they, they call it, a crucible, with the silver in it to extreme degrees of heat. Like really hot. Hotter than your oven, right? right? Have, you have you touched your oven before? Not good, right? Hotter than your oven. And what will happen as they refine the silver is the impurities, because of the heat, will rise to the top and they will scrape off the impurity. Scrape it off. Fire burning the silver, scraping off the impurity. And what I have heard is that old silversmiths would actually look into the silver to see if it was ready by seeing whether or not they could see their own face in the silver, their reflection. So what Malachi is saying is God may afflict you in a certain way that it will heat you up so that your impurities rise to the top that he might scrape them off so that you might better reflect him in all your ways. Affliction is painful. Affliction doesn't feel good. Yet affliction in the Christian's life may be necessary in the hands and in the plans of a loving and faithful God so that he might present us blameless at the day of redemption as he will, as recorded in Jude 24 through 25. In other words, affliction by the hand of the Lord may be as sharp and devastating as the chemo needle. 
but it may be the cure we need for our cancerous heart. So in our story, God sends Jonah to the ocean and he covers him with it. And it is God's affliction that leads to Jonah's petition. It is God's discipline that leads Jonah to cry out in desperation. And although Jonah prayed this prayer in the belly of the fish, his call to the Lord is referring to his call out to God as he was descending in the depths of the sea. And the righteous affliction of the Lord had awakened him from his rebellious stupor. Verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. Let me say something here. So as he's descending, he cries out to the Lord, realizing it is the Lord that is afflicting him, and he needs the Lord. He was okay with dying before, but he comes to his senses, and he says, I need the Lord. I need him. Now, the story of Jonah has often been compared to the story or the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, and I think rightly so. Tim Keller has a whole book on this, The, par- uh, the Prodigal Prophet. I didn't read the book, read the synopsis, but I didn't read the book, right? But I've heard it's good. And he even compares Jonah to the rebellious son as well as the self-righteous son. Because in the parable of the prodigal son, a boy demands his father's wealth, leaves his father's care, disregards his father's guidance and teaching, acts rebelliously, and after a famine brings him to his knees without anything to eat, in a moment of clarity, he comes to his senses, he recognizes his sin, and he remembers his father. He has genuine remorse over his sin. He took from his father and he ran. How could he be so selfish? He thought. At the same time, in the parable of the prodigal son, he remembers the joys of being in his father's presence. He remembers the care that his father exercised even to his own servants. He remembers his father's love. And so he runs to him. All the energy he has left, he runs to his father. Meanwhile, his father sees him far off, runs to meet him, and upon meeting his father, the son gets before him, repents of his sin with great remorse, confessing it before his father, and his father says, Welcome home, son. In Jonah, we meet a prodigal prophet, one who has run from the care of his loving and sovereign father only to realize his need while we have only one prayer that Jonah records out of the belly of the fish I am certain this was not his only prayer in fact we, I, I know it wasn't his only prayer because in the prayer he hearkens back to another prayer where he called out to the Lord in his distress where he had genuine remorse over his sin, recognized his helpless estate, remembered the Lord, and repented. And God runs to the runaway and receives the rebellious rebel. So we must learn from this. We must. And I want to ask you this morning before we move on, I want you to ask yourself, are you running from God? Maybe you say sort of, but not like Jonah. And to that, I would only remind you that Jonah's actions began with disregarding and disobeying the words of God. And we have before us, in our Bible, open this morning, the very words of God. Disobeying God's word is a direct order, or is disobeying a direct order from God. 
So are you running from God? If so, what will it take for God to turn you around, for you to repent? God may go, as we see in the book of Jonah, to great lengths to afflict you, that you might be awakened to your need for Him. What will it take? Will it be a fish? We don't live that far from the ocean. I'm just saying. What will it take? When he speaks, Christian, obey. May we listen, may we trust, may we treasure his words in our heart as Jonah does once more again, recounting the words of the psalmist. And may we obey. And if we do not, hear me, and if we run, may God hear me in his loving kindness grant us the privilege of a second chance as he gives Jonah through whatever means necessary, even like a fish. Now here's the good news if this is you this morning, and we're not done yet. The good news is that you can come before him. The word of the Lord tells us very clearly that a broken and contrite heart he does not despise. So you say, I've ran far. I'm removed from his presence, I feel. But even the psalmist declares, where can I go that you are not? Even in Sheol, you are there. And if you have genuine remorse over your sin, you recognize your helpless estate. Throw yourself upon the mercies of God and repent. Ask yourself, where have I sinned against you, Lord? Is there any evil and way in me? Is there any sin I need to confess? Recognize your sin, your desperate need for God's mercy. Confess your sin. Throw yourselves upon the mercy of God. Ask for forgiveness. Turn from sin. Bow in submission and resolve to serve the Lord. If even today you are living in sin, repent. The Lord is near. But we're not finished. We're only on point one. You look at the time, we're going to make it. Number two, salvation brought by God, resulting in Jonah's prayers. I assure you the first point's the longest. Salvation brought by God, resulting in Jonah's praise. Verse two, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. We looked at that already, but what does it say? He answered me. He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol. I was the, that was the deepest part you could be. I was as far away from God as you could be. And he heard my voice. Now hear me. When we talk about Jonah, we automatically, immediately think of the story of the fish. But the fish was not the consequence for Jonah's sin. The fish was the answer to Jonah's prayer. A lot, of the, a lot of us view the fish wrongly to think of it as something tragic that happened to Jonah. The only thing tragic in the story of Jonah is his defiance and disobedience toward the Lord. The fish is the triumphant grace of our sovereign God. This isn't debatable. Like the guy in the fish says so. G. Campbell Morgan said, Men have long been looking hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. So the crazy thing, hear me, and I want to have an argument here, the crazy thing in the book of Jonah is not that Jonah got swallowed by a fish. 
The crazy thing in the book of Jonah is that God saved Jonah. And that's not an extrapolation. That's Jonah's mindset too. While the story of the large fish has made Jonah popular, there are only two verses that include the fish. Kind of like two and a half, right? While there are eight verses that included in between so where Jonah praises God for appointing his salvation. He's not marveled at the fish. He's marveled at his father. You see, we so often approach the text as skeptics, giving so much attention to answering the question of what kind of fish it was, how it would have happened, how it would have swallowed Jonah, and we do so missing that the fish was merely an instrument that God chose to use and appointed to save Jonah from drowning in the depths of the ocean. Jonah didn't make a big deal of the fish. He just states what happened. Why would that be? Well, if we believe, as Jonah did, that God can speak through a donkey, command two bears, restrict and enable childbirth, cause plagues, feed nations, heal diseases, and raise our Savior from the dead, then telling a fish to open his mouth and swallow a man is no big problem. What is extraordinary in this passage is not fish, it's the Father's grace. And that's what Jonah tells us about. Verse 6 and 7, you brought my life from the pit. But where does he bring his life? Up. What has happened in Jonah's trajectory so far? He's gone down and down and down, farther and farther from the presence of the Lord he feels. He went down to the docks, down below the deck, down to the depths, and yet God was still there and brought him up. I was reading this passage and preparing for this message, and I could not help but think of Ephesians chapter 2. Here's what it says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... While you were dead, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might put on display his grace. It is all of God's grace that did not allow Jonah to die. Jonah did not contribute as if he had anything that could. He was helpless. His situation is described in that he had no way of saving himself. Christian, this is, in many ways, your story. You were dead, unable to revive yourself, unrighteous, and helpless at the mercy of God to do what he did, to send a Savior in your stead, to die upon the cross, the punishment due you for the sin that you committed, and he took upon himself the wrath of God so that he might raise you up again, give you new life to the praise of his glorious grace. Jesus came to us on a rescue mission while we were destined for death, and it's foreshadowed in the book of Jonah. This is worth praising God as Jonah does, and that's what Jonah did. Do you not think for a moment that Jonah tried swimming? 
And just as Jonah's affliction in the water led to his petition, his salvation leads to his praise. Jonah commits his life totally to the Lord. He says, idols can't save you from anything. They have no power. They provide no grace. They do not love. Only the Lord can save. That's what verse 8 says. And then in verse 9, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. And then he says this statement in verse 9 that I think summarizes the book of Jonah and is the title of this sermon. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is not random that I told you the sovereignty of God, reminded you of it at the beginning of this message. This was both Jonah's personal realization and poetic exclamation. Salvation belongs to the Lord after God graciously saved him by appointing a fish to swallow him up. No, no, no other words could better describe Jonah's appreciation for all that God had done. See, the Lord, now we might debate this, but I would say what Jonah has done here and that he's praising God, sacrificed and made vows, really echoes what he should have done before and what the sailors did in chapter 1. The Lord previously saved pagan fishermen despite Jonah's disobedience against his God, and he would soon save an idolatrous nation despite Jonah's detestation of its people. God is sovereign even over salvation. He has the ability to work in the midst of our faithfulness to save people as we proclaim the gospel, and he has the ability to work despite our unfaithfulness. He can open the eyes of blinded men and women of this age they're blinded by the God of this age and cause them to be convicted. He can change circumstances, command fish, and call people. He can act through the means of the righteous or the unrighteous. He is a glorious, sovereign Savior whose power knows no bounds. Now hear me. We're almost to our conclusion. He intended to save those Ninevites. Did he not? And he intended as well Jonah to do so. He could have picked someone else. He could have done it without Jonah, but that was not his plan. So he showed the same unrelenting grace to as he would soon show to the Ninevites who were idolatrous. What God intends, he will accomplish. It is good that God is sovereign. It is because he is sovereign, he is able save. Jonah was awakened through affliction. He repented of his rebellion. And because of God's sovereign mercy, he was able to sing of God's sovereign grace. So do you know salvation belongs to the Lord? Do you know that? God's will was to save the Ninevites, and he did. God's will accomplishes all his purpose and works out all things according to his will. He's able to save the pagan sailors, an idolatrous, violent people called the Ninevites because salvation belongs to the Lord. He's able to save a runaway rebel in the bottom of the ocean because salvation belongs to the Lord. And he's able to save even a kid from Missouri whose past, probably like you, was not pleasing to him because salvation belongs to the Lord. So no matter who you are, Ninevites, pagan sailors, runaway prophet, 
God is able to save. No matter what you've done, disobeyed God, worshipped idols, even the idol of a good reputation like Jonah did. And no matter where you are, even in the depths of the ocean, you are not far from a loving, sovereign Savior who is able to save. God is able to save you. Do you know that? He is able to save you from the punishment you deserve because of your sin, and He is able to give you life that you don't because of His Savior. Repent from your sin and run headlong into the Savior's arms. Believe upon Him. So I just want to ask you as we sing this final song together, is there maybe something in your life, Christian, that you need to repent of? Is there maybe a time that you need to remain seated as we sing, go before the Lord and say, I am sorry. God, grant me repentance. Give me remorse over my sin. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Do you need to do that in this time? Because this is a time that is fitted for that. And maybe you heard for the first time the gospel of the salvation that comes to us in the Savior, Jesus Christ, and you want to talk to someone about that. Well, I'm available. Uh, many in this room are available. If you're online, just send us a message. We have three ways that you can contact us, and I encourage you to do so. Just contact us. We want to talk to you. We want to tell you about our marvelous Savior. But before I conclude, I just want to tell you point three, and it's really a sentence. A commission brought by God, resulting in God's purpose. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish, vomit out Jonah upon the dry, dry land. You have to think Jonah would, must have just been thinking, am I washed up? I mean, certainly he was washed up. He probably stunk like fish, right? But am I washed up? Is God able to use me again? And in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, that will be in next week, the word of the Lord came a second time to Jonah and said, arise and go. No matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God is a gracious, sovereign Lord who seeks to save, repent, believe, and he will send you for his glorious grace. Would you pray with me?